Genesis chapter 18, I'll read verse 1 to 5 now. And the Lord appeared to him by the ox of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after, you, after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Now moving, moving on to verse 9. They say to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a child. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Now moving on to verse 20. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still, still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. It's the word of God. Thanks, Peter. Thanks so much for reading, Wendy. Why don't we get into it? It'll be really lovely for you to keep Genesis 18 uh, open in front of you. And it's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for welcoming me, um, Joel, and um, the few I met in the breakout room. It's always such a pleasure to be with you. And I hope you've got a good feel for the story of Abraham uh, thus far. We've been in Abraham's story for a few weeks. And he's not your typical protagonist, is he? I can't think of many other stories that revolve around uh, an old man in a tent. <clears throat> but as early as chapter 12, we learn that Abraham is an individual of uh, cosmic significance. 
because it's through Abraham that God will save the world. The nations will be blessed. And we've passed something of a, of a turning point in the story in today's passage. So God promised back in chapter 12 that Abraham's name would be great. And in last week's passage, God added just one syllable to his name, uh, but it was one syllable that made all the difference because it, it wasn't merely a change of label, but a change of title. So Abram, whose name meant exalted father, became Abraham, the father of a multitude. The expansion of Abram's name reflects God's promise to expand his family, even to all the nations of the world. But as we enter chapter 18, I mean, nothing screams father of a multitude about Abraham's situation, does it? His wife, Sarah, is unable to have children, as we read. And the son that Abraham does have, well, he was born to Sarah's servant girl, Hagar, and he's not the child of promise. Which means that the hopes of the world depend on an impossibility. The blessing of the nations is contingent on Sarah, who's far beyond childbearing years. And it depends on her giving birth to the child who will bring blessing to the nations. And so I think we have one, one big question as we enter this section of Genesis, which is how can this covenant work when even step one is an impossibility? And here's a summary of what we'll see today. Uh, you'll see this on the handout if you're following along. Abraham believes that God can do the impossible to make him the father of nations. And so he extends his own care to the nations in peril. And I hope that we can come away today convinced of God's ability to deliver on his promises and see how closely this belief is related to living out the covenant, blessing the nations. So firstly, that Abraham believes that God can do the impossible to make him the father of nations. We'll be looking at chapters 18 and 19 over this week and next week. And today's chapter 18. We get daytime with Abraham. And next week is nighttime on that same day. It's one of the most stunning 24-hour blocks in the scriptures. And this entire jaw-dropping sequence is triggered by an equally uh, remarkable visit in verse 1 of our passage today as Wendy read it. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Uh, we can imagine uh, old Abraham fanning himself. He's trying to cool down in an age before um, air conditioners or, or cornettos. And, and suddenly, before his very eyes, three men appear in front of him. Now, I'm sure that the heat of day can play tricks on our eyes. It's probably something we're not particularly at risk of in London at the moment. But Abraham seems to know that this is no mirage, because in verse 2, he runs to them, uh, which for a hundred-year-old man was not only a mean athletic feat, but it would have been a very rare sight for a dignified elderly man of standing. You might imagine our queen scrambling to meet one of her guests. It would be bizarre, wouldn't it? But these aren't just any visitors in Abraham's case, because he bows himself to the earth as he meets them, and he says in verse three, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. 
Abraham recognizes his visitors as God. Uh, he refers to them in the singular as Lord, refers to himself as servant, and immediately offers them this dose of Middle Eastern hospitality. And an obvious question to ask is, I mean, how, how is it this works that God might be represented by these three men? And it's worth saying the precise mechanics of this have been a topic of discussion for centuries, and we, we probably won't settle it over a lunchtime. Uh, but no matter what position one holds, it's clear that as Abraham welcomes these men, he is showing hospitality to God. You might recall that in verse four there, Abraham offered a, a morsel of bread, uh, but his understated offer is really for a lavish feast. You know, the kind to put our most extravagant uh, Christmas dinners to shame, even with all the trimmings. And in verse six, Abraham dashes over to Sarah and says, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And I quite feel for Sarah, whose, whose day plans have been sidelined by this request to cook. Uh, but if you're wondering if three seahs is enough flour for a morsel or maybe two, I mean, we're talking about 22 litres worth. This is a banquet in the making. And it's not just a platter of the finest baked goods. In verse seven, we read, Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. He took curds and milk and the calf that he prepared and set it before them. I mean, this is a serious spread. I'm not sure how you entertain unannounced guests. I'm sure we haven't really had much of a run of that in London recently, uh, but maybe you rustle up a cup of tea and some dusty hobnobs if they're spare but Abraham knows this is a very special occasion. Now, th this story is strange at first glance. There's no getting around it. But I think the biggest question is, I mean, how does this follow what we've seen in chapter 17? So God and Abraham have just made this covenant together. So why should this unannounced feast be the next thing on the author's agenda? Well, one explanation is that this feast is a covenant meal. Uh, food was an important part of covenant making in the ancient Near East. And you'll see this in various other um, key moments in the Bible. You can think of um, Israel at, at Sinai and Exodus, um, through to the bread and wine of the new covenant with Jesus and the disciples. And, and this covenant meal understanding is supported by the topic of conversation over the table, namely the promised child. If you'll read with me in verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And if you're feeling a bit of deja vu, uh, that is the promise made in chapter 17. And so this, this peaceful, harmonious, sunny feast with Abraham and God, it's marking that sure promise that Abraham and Sarah will bear a son in one year. It's a beautiful promise, but an impossible promise. Because in verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. I'm not sure what advanced in years means to you. Uh, the, the world record for the oldest childbearer uh, was in a woman in India who gave birth at 73 years old, uh, made possible only with the help of advanced medical technology. But she has nothing on Sarah, who is a sprightly 90 
at this point in the story. So what does Sarah make of God's uh, covenant promise here as she listens at the tent door? Look with me in verse 12. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? We've observed that complicated and painful journey it's been for Sarah thus far in Genesis. And Sarah is burnt out on waiting for her baby. She's given up hope. And so she can't help but scoff at the suggestion of this biological impossibility. It feels like a cruel joke to be promised a baby, even if it's the creator God who promises it. But listen to how God responds. Uh, Look with me in verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. That statement is, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a question upon which the faith of God's people hangs. It's so easy for you and I to begin to think like Sarah, that perhaps we're, we're burnt out on promises made and yet undelivered by God. You know, we're jaded and disgruntled for not getting our way with God when we wanted it. Perhaps distrusting his ability to deliver on what he said, scoffing at his words deep down, you know, bitter at the sound of his promises. The gospel either seems too good to be true or desperately out of reach. And at those moments, we need to say, is anything too hard for the Lord? I mean, do we realize that we are partnered with the creator God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist? If he's promised it, he will surely do it. And when God questions Sarah's incredulous laughter in verse 15, well, Sarah's response is a feeble cover-up. When the Lord asks about Sarah's laughter, we read that Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. And isn't it just an amazing example of what we're like before God? You know, distrust leads to dishonesty, that our, our cynicism of God leads to our hiding from him. You know, we're desperate to present ourselves as faithful and believing to others, you know, even to God when inwardly we doubt and we despair and grumble. This is a moment for Sarah to own up and repent, to be transparent with God. But we, as readers, we get no such report. Sarah's response is a direct contrast to what we see between um, Abraham and God. Abraham who once laughed in surprise and not bitterness at the promise of a child. Abraham will proceed to act on the basis of a child who is merely promised and not yet delivered. And we see this demonstrated in our next point. If you've tuned out, um, it's a good time to tune back in. Abraham believes that God will do the impossible to make him the father of nations. And so he extends his own care to the nations in peril. He extends his own care to the nations in peril. As the men leave Abraham's tent, Uh, It becomes clear that their departure isn't because conversation was running dry. The Lord is on his way to the land of Sodom. A land that we learned of back in chapter three, if you remember, which stated that the men of Sodom were wicked, 
great sinners against the Lord. And it's also the land where Abraham's nephew Lot lives, which we'll think about next week. And we're given an insight into God's internal dialogue as he walks with Abraham. If you read with me in verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. As we get this insight into God's thoughts, where we we learn that God intends to deal with a foreign nation. And Abraham is the newly dubbed father of nations. So will God be transparent with Abraham as his covenant partner? Or will he be like Sarah, you know, furtive and dishonest? I mean, this passage gives us a precious insight into our God, this model of covenant faithfulness. A God who does not hide his intentions but a God who is trustworthy and transparent, you know, like a faithful friend or a faithful spouse. Covenant partnership with the Lord means transparency. And in verse 20, that God is transparent with Abraham. If you read with me in verse 20, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So God is revealing to Abraham that judgment is coming for this foreign nation. And I wonder if we didn't read ahead, what might you expect to follow? Because has anyone intervened in the face of God's judgment thus far in Genesis? You know, what we expect is the fair but unstoppable judgment poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah like a flood without intervention. But what we get is Abraham the father of nations, humbly appealing to God as his covenant partner that the city might be spared, that there is hope for the city. So let's see how this unfolds from verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham has definitively stepped into his role as the father of nations. You know, it's as though he's realized, I'm not just Abram anymore. I'm Abraham, I'm the father of nations. And and no, I don't have that child of promise yet. But if the Lord has promised it, then it's as good as done. So I can get on with blessing the nations. The Lord has been training Abraham for such a moment as this. And Abraham begins petitioning um, on the basis of there being 50 righteous in the city. And if so, will God spare it? And we wonder what's in Abraham's mind's eye at this point as he thinks of Sodom. Perhaps he has his nephew Lot and Lot's family in mind as he asks the Lord for mercy on this sinful city. Which raises a question. I mean, what if Lot's family is only 10 strong? And so Abraham presses the issue. And in fact, if you read through verses 22 to 33, Abraham appeals six times, each time asking for the city to be spared. 
but there are fewer and fewer righteous citizens of Sodom. From 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20, and finally to 10 righteous. And it'd be great for you to read this through on your own, because when I read through, my heart is in my mouth. It feels like Abraham is pressing his luck. <laughs> and you just get this sense, oh, is, is God going to pull the rug out from under Abraham and say, hey, enough is enough. Uh, I've got a friend of mine who um, loves to drive a hard bargain. And he's the kind of guy who kind of makes fun of me for buying things off Amazon when there's Gumtree and Facebook Marketplace. I'm not sure if you have a friend like that. He likes to squeeze every penny. And he recently moved into a new flat in London. And I was privy to some of his negotiations with the landlord. You know, first he got them down on price and then he got them down on the move-in date. And by the end, he was even asking for extra furniture and a gas hob conversion. And I was saying, Ben, Ben, you're gonna lose this place if you keep pushing them. Uh, but I must have underestimated how desperate the London housing market is at the moment. Um, Ben's boldness was well-founded. And you get the same sense here with Abraham and God. And just as that exchange reaches a fever pitch in verse 32, the Lord says, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Abraham's boldness in petitioning God as the father of nations was well-founded. God is the just judge of all the earth, whose desire it is to bless the nations. And he's made Abraham his man for the job. And we'll have to wait until next week to see if there really are 10 righteous in Sodom. Uh, but let's, let's draw things together for now. You know, we started in this section of Genesis asking, how is this covenant going to work when step one is impossible? And the answer is clear that nothing is too hard for the Lord. If God has promised it, it will surely come to pass. And beautifully and encouragingly, we see, we see Abraham act on this very basis. He doesn't have the child, and yet he acts. And it gives us a glimpse into the future reality of the covenant, that God surely will provide the promised offspring, and that the blessing of the nations will mean safety from judgment as the offspring intervenes. Chapter 18 is a time to be very optimistic in the book of Genesis, because it's the picture of how restoration of a fallen world will come about. A picture of what is accomplished by the Lord Jesus, ultimately, the capital O offspring, uh, that through an impossible virgin birth, by an impossible resurrection from the dead, the Lord Jesus has blessed the many. He has counted the many righteous and marked them as safe on judgment day. I looked around at the start of this call and the many nationalities on this call is proof of God keeping his word to Abram as many thousand years ago. Each Christian, his spiritual offspring, and each of us a member of a family that blesses the nations. If you're a Christian today, then you are evidence that nothing is too hard for the Lord. You're evidence that Sarah's scoffing was unwarranted. She was wrong to doubt because God has delivered. He has already blessed the nations through Jesus, the child of promise. And he continues to as the gospel goes out. And it's so natural to want more than simply God's guarantee. You know, we want to demand more material blessing before we actually go out and follow him. And perhaps you're feeling those things most acutely right now when it feels like the world has stopped turning on its axis. 
But if we truly grasp that God is the God of the impossible, then we, like Abraham, can go on to live on the basis that he will surely bring his promises to pass, no matter how unbelievable they might seem. We can get on with blameless living, living transparently with God, partnering with the Lord for the safety of those in danger on Judgment Day, speaking and living the gospel as we take up our family role and blessing the nations as we've been blessed. Uh, I've got some questions um, on the handout sheet that you can discuss afterwards, but before we head off to discuss, why don't I lead us in prayer? Dear Father, we pray that we would believe that you can do the things that you have promised, no matter how impossible they seem. And yet we also thank you for what we have already seen, that the nations are blessed through Jesus, that we are the living proof of your promise to Abraham that has come to pass. And we pray that this confidence would overflow into our own blessing of the nations, we see Abraham do, that we would be living and sharing the gospel in the midst of an unbelieving world. And we pray these things in the mighty name of, of the offspring, Jesus. Amen.